Right. Good morning. Good to see everyone. Thank you, Parkmans, for uh, the scripture reading and the prayer. Uh, yesterday, I was at the um, Sugarland Farmers Market. My family and I went out, and uh, we've gone uh, for two weeks in a row. And, and we're talking to one of the vendors there that we've got to know. And you know, as it's just normal conversation. And it's, hey, where's home for you? And I say, well, I live in Richmond, but. Um, I'm originally from Louisiana, and the next question I could have predicted it, it's been the same question I've got for the last stinking three weeks, um, which is, uh, any Christmas party I've gone to, any event I've gone to has been, Stephen, what'd you think about that game? And, uh, and everybody's laughing, knows, for those who are like, what are you talking about? Maybe you lived under a rock three weeks ago, I don't know, but uh, this room was marooned out three weeks ago because LSU and Texas A&M played probably one of uh, the greatest, uh, highest scoring games in college football history, all right? There we go. We got thumbs up. All right. I think I'm the only LSU fan here. I don't know, but all right, there we go. All right. Show us some love. So uh, fourth quarter comes. It's the end of the game. It looks like LSU is going to come back and take the win. And out of the clutches of death, there is a turnover. We'll call it that. A turnover, okay? A turnover. And um, before that happens, the LSU players pick up, and I won't give you uh, the pleasure of hearing me say the score, okay? We'll just say it was a high-scoring game by the end of it, but the players for LSU pick up the, the bucket of Gatorade and dump it on good old Coach O, and they throw it on Coach O, and his shirt's all wet, and everybody's just like a 10-win season. We're going on, and all of a sudden, the turnover has been changed because the quarterback's knee was on the ground before he threw the ball, and I am flipping out in front of my TV. I'm like, no, you're kidding. Little did I know, a whole entire game later, two hours later, it would be one event after another, right? It would just be twist and turn after another, and by midnight, the game is finally over, and I'm like, man, I'm, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything because you're controlling the slides, so uh, we'll We'll leave that there. Uh, you're lucky. So I'll see you afterwards. Uh, okay, so, um, but if you ask any Texas A&M fan about the game, they get giddy. But not while they were watching the game, because here's my jab, we won the last seven years. But I'll just leave that there. Okay, so, uh, but they get giddy because there was a change in circumstances, they were uh, rescued from the clutches of death, if you will. They uh, experienced a, a joy that they had not had before in playing LSU previously, and everyone displayed that Sunday morning wearing maroon. My goodness, even the year-end font was in maroon, right? So, like, it, I'm seeing these things. You don't see it because you're, like, wearing maroon, but I'm like, oh, God, let's just get on with this. So, um, but instead of being 12th people, now I call Texas A&M people the seventh overtime people. That's what they are, right? Because they're, they have made it out of the end of the fourth quarter and now they are seventh quarter people and it has made all the difference in the world. Last year, uh, I, I was, uh, it was about last March, during March Madness. I, I love basketball more than football. Played basketball, love it. And uh, I'm, I'm at Wingstop, and, uh, which is, by the way, the greatest wing fry combo you can ever get anywhere. Like they literally, okay, so just go. And if you haven't, I'll take you. We'll go. It'll be awesome. But I'm sitting there, March Madness, watching the basketball game. And um, I realized I'd seen this game. It was a game that had come on like two days before. So I'm watching. I'm like, oh, this is cool. 
the guys sitting next to me are watching it like they've seen it for the first time. So they're talking about it, and I do what any self-respecting 34-year-old man would do, and I say, you want to put a bet on this guy? <laughs> right? They have no idea. Like, I probably came on too strong, you know, but that's not joy. That's confidence, okay? That, that, that is not joy. That's confidence. That's me trying to scam people out of 20 bucks, okay? That is, that's just confidence. That's not joy. There's a difference between the two, and you can judge me all you want, right? <laughs> but I'm not joyful about any of those two teams winning. I'm confident. Texas A&M fans were joyful, Right? There's a difference there between the two. So what is joy? Let's just say, for the sake of illustration, let's pretend I'm a Texas A&M fan. Okay? Let's just, oh my goodness gracious. I'm getting out of this illustration really quickly. Okay? But let's just say, for the sake of illustration, it's fall 2019, a year later, and the rerun comes up, and you're hanging out in my living room, and we've got our maroon shirts on. Okay? And we're all excited. And all of a sudden, the fourth quarter comes, the ball is thrown, the interception happens, and I take my drink and I throw it on the ground. And I'm like, are you kidding me? No! We lose to them every year. And you look at me and you're like, dude, why'd you waste that beer? Like, what's going on? Why are you throwing a fit, man? Don't you know the end? Don't you know how this plays out? Right? Dude, what, what, why are you flipping out, man? Have different emotions, there will be a reasonableness to you, which is what Paul is going to say in here. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. You would forbear the stress of the next two and a half hours because you know what? The seventh quarter is coming, right? You would be able to endure your present circumstances. You would say to me, Stephen, you've got the wrong feelings going on here. Be happy, rejoice. Or let's suppose my Aggies in the room watch a clip of the LSU players dump that Gatorade and once was a, oh dang, next year, now it's, <laughs> it ain't over, sucker. You're going to wear that shirt for two more hours and you're going to lose in it, right? There's not just a confidence, there's a joy that you have. And brothers and sisters, this morning I submit to you that this is what the Bible means by joy. The reason Paul can say in Philippians 4, 4, look there with me, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice, is because in Jesus of Nazareth, the end has broken into the present. The future has come into now. The final score of the seventh overtime has broken into the final seconds of the fourth quarter. You see this, last, this phrase here, look in uh, chapter 3, verse 21. You see this last phrase, by the power. You see that? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay? Now don't miss this. That's a reference and an allusion to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 6. And we're not going to flip there, but I'm just going to tell you kind of a summary. Psalm 8 is a psalm that celebrates uh, how majestic God's name is in all the earth. God's name is majestic. God's name is kingly because when you look at the sunset... And when you look at the sunrise, or when you get out of the hustle and bustle of Houston, and you uh, escape to a rural area, and you look up at night, and the stars are what? Big and bright. 
right? And then you look at yourself and you think, why me? Why would you think of me, God? That sunset, those stars are way more glorious than me. They, they look better than I do every single day. Why would you consider me, lowly, little, broken, Stephen, Mishral, why would you consider me? And Psalm 8, 6 harkens back to the first pages of the Bible in Genesis 1 where God creates Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground and he gives them dominion over the created order. And Psalm 8 celebrates that it reminds us of God giving us ruling and reigning responsibilities to Adam and Eve. But of course, as you know how the story goes, maybe if not, if you've heard for the first time, if you're here for the first time, it's fine. The very first humans that God created botch everything up by not finding their joy in God. But when you move to the New Testament, this phrase Subject all things, dominion, ruling and reigning, subject all things to himself, isn't applied to Adam. It's applied to Jesus. And this isn't simply creation language here in Philippians 3.21. This is new creation language. This is on earth as it is in heaven Lord's Prayer language. So when you see Jesus, you see a new created order breaking into the cosmos. You see a new Adam, a true and greater Adam. You see the presence of the future. And this is why the good news gospel always brings with it love, of course, but also a great Joy, indestructible, rock-solid joy. So take, for example, at Jesus' birth, we'll throw this up. This is from Luke, if you want to go ahead and put it up there. Um, this is from Luke 2. At Jesus' birth, Mary takes Jesus and she wraps him in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger. Okay? You see that? That's from Luke 2, 7. And when she does this, she doesn't just do this in isolation. She does it with herself nearby. She does it near Joseph and near sheep and oxen, animals. The very thing that Adam and Eve were to rule over, the created order. And, and then a couple years later, the nations are going to come to see this baby son, Jesus and so all, the, all, of, all of creation is coming to gather around this cradle, this baby. And when Mary does this, the very order, all things, Philippians 3, 21, all things Jesus came to rule over. This is why when we're going to sing joy to the world, let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains. God is not coming to simply rescue souls and pluck them out and give you a harp and float away in a cloud. He's coming to restore rocks and hills and floods and plains to make all things new. And so let all things repeat the sounding joy. 
So when you see Jesus laying in the cradle, you are seeing a picture of the future breaking into the present. But when Luke writes his gospel, he sets this up so that when we get to the end of Luke's gospel, Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body, and I don't know if this is up here, Joseph of Arimathea takes Jesus' body from the cross, and what does he do? He wraps him in linen uh, a shroud, and what? Lays him in a tomb. And when God raises Jesus from the dead, Jesus comes up out of the dust from the earth, just like Adam, with breath, breathes it out to his disciples. And where do we meet Jesus that first Easter morning? In a garden. It's no accident. It's no accident. Mary uh, Magdalene's like, hey, what have you done with the body of Jesus? She thought Jesus was a gardener. No, this is the true Adam, the original gardener, has now come here in Jesus. And he's raised out of the ground with all authority on heaven and earth having been given to him. And so if you know the Christmas story, that same night an angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and the glory of God is shown all around. And what does the angel say? I bring you good news, gospel of duty. <laughs> no, I bring you good news of great joy of great joy, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That is a sign. The presence of the future. So when you see Jesus of Nazareth, you are not simply looking at a peasant baby. You are looking at the presence of the future breaking into human history now to rewrite our story. N.T. Wright says this. Let's see if we can throw the quote up. He says this, The joy we see in the Gospels is not simply natural human delight in times of healing and reconciliation. That it is that as well. It is the joy of discovering that Israel's God was at last doing the thing he had promised rescuing the people from their exile and providing forgiveness, restoration, and new life. And it is the joy to be experienced in the fresh presence of God, not now, after all, in a rebuilt temple, but in the person and actions of Jesus. And also with the fresh act of God rescuing people, not now from Egypt or Babylon, but from death itself. Joy isn't just that we know how the story ends. That would be to reduce joy to an idea or to a conviction. That would be like uh, my wager at Wingstop. Joy is a feeling. Joy is a good feeling. Not just a feeling, it's a good feeling. It's like the Texas A&M fans here stayed up all night and were glad to show up with maroon, to maroon out, right? It didn't matter how late you were up. You were happy. There was a good feeling. And notice what Paul says in Philippians 4.1. He says this, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crown. Do you see that in Philippians 4.1? Therefore my brothers whom I love and I long for. I long for you. Next word, you're my joy. 
There's a feeling with longing and joy in Paul's mind. I could take you to all kinds of other places, but this is how you determine what words mean. You look in context, and here we have context telling us what the word joy means. There's a sense of longing. There's a feeling here. For the Christian, joy is the good, happy feeling that Jesus is now king on earth as he is in heaven. Let me say that again. For the Christian, joy is the good, happy feeling that Jesus is now king on earth as he is in heaven. And I know what you're thinking. Um, likely, likely, besides when's he gonna finish. I know what you're thinking. How can God command my feelings? It's not like a thought. I can't just flip on and off like a switch. Stephen just said joy is a feeling and you can't command feelings. Ready? Feel, here you go. Be angry. Fear. Be glad. Be tender-hearted towards one another. God gives all of these commands throughout Scripture. And I, here, here's an even more clear one. Paul's going to say in two sentences later, look with me in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, okay. I hadn't thought about that one before. <laughs> like, that's a feeling. That's a feeling. So... I understand the objection. I'm with you this time of year. Um, I'm Scrooge. I, I just am. I'm, I'm Scrooge. Like, I'm not like Patrick Smith. I don't know if he's here. Uh, Mr. Pecan Grove Lights winner. Uh, good for you. I'm not bitter or jealous or angry, but um, good for you, man. That's cool. Uh, so, uh, I, just in my mind, I'm like, let's can we just get the holidays over with. The rampant American consumerism. Like, can, can we just... Get past that, the, the, and if you know my Luke 2 bent, I'm like, just get the story right at least. And, and, uh, because joy isn't an American Christmas thing. It's a every moment gospel truth thing. And in America, we don't know what to do, do with joy, so we have to wrap it up with consumerism and buying things. And then you come to church and hear joy, and you're like, oh, <laughs> Parentheses, I'll stop there. So, and if you have a problem with God commanding feelings like joy, then you need to understand how God works. The command to rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, is meant to drive you not to have the power within yourself, but to what? To the one who, what? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If I had written this, the uh, liberal theologian in me uh, doesn't like it. I want to re-edit it. I'm like, some things. By the power that enables him to subject some things so that God can look at me and be like, hey, Stephen, um, if you could, like, when possible, maybe a couple times a month, give me a shout out and, like, feel good about me. And, uh, and that, that'd be cool. But, like, I'm not going to command you to do things that you can't do. Now, God commands us to do things that we can't do so that the power that we would tap into is the very one who has subjected all things to himself. Even, I want to say this, even your feelings, 
even your personality. I can't change my personality. Go to Christ with your personality. Go to Christ with your feelings. Look, man, you don't get a pass just because you feel like you can't change something. He created you and he owns you and he redeemed you and he has all of the, what? Like, I can't imagine someone being like, God wants me to be happy and joyous. Like, what's wrong with you? Of course not. Yes, yes. Blessed be the God and Father. Happy is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God has broken into our story. God commands feelings because he subjected all things to Jesus, not just morality and moments of crisis, all things. Jesus wears the crown. Again, I will say, Jesus wears the crown. Not me. And not you. So God commands us to rejoice even when we can't always rejoice. And I am not oblivious to the fact of how that might land on us this time of year. The command doesn't depend on you because the power doesn't come from you. Remember 321? Look at 321. By the power that enables him to subject all things. That's not the first time Paul has mentioned the word power. Look back about a dozen verses or so in chapter 3 verse 10. Look, look in Philippians 3.10 and he, Paul's picking up on that. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I've, uh, I've walked with Jesus now for um, I'm 35, a little over two decades. Walked with the Lord now for a little over two, for 20 plus years. And um, do you know when I found it the most difficult to rejoice in the Lord? When I don't know him as I ought. Ask anybody who's walked with the Lord, whether it's been a week, you'll see more. But it's because you don't know him as you ought. It's very difficult to rejoice in something that you don't know, especially someone that you don't know. That's why it's easy for A&M fans to rejoice in winning. They're not rejoicing at LSU because they don't know it. They know A&M, right? That's just the way that our feelings are wired. And we're meant to have light and heat. And how can you rejoice in something that you don't know? There's this, um, I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but there's this great scene in this uh, Christmas movie, Elf. And um, uh, Buddy is in the um, department store and the manager says, all right, everyone, announcement. Tomorrow, Santa's going to be here. And what does Buddy do? Santa, I know. Okay, that's the last time I'm going to do that, right? But I know him, right? It, it, not like, oh, Santa, I know him. Like, he knows him, right? He's excited about him. There's a knowledge here about him. But what I love about this passage is it's real. There's all of this new creation, God making things new, new Adam subjecting things to Jesus, his rule and reign. Oh, oh yeah, man, that's awesome. That's stuff Sundays are made of. But you know what is right in the middle of this passage? Stuff Mondays are made of. Look at the Philippians 4, 2, verse 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's Monday. That's Monday. Okay? 
And anyone who, what Paul is doing here, if you know the Bible at all, Paul is doing what Jesus says to do in Matthew 18. You know that passage that says, like, where two or more are gathered, there I am with you in your name? That's often misquoted because it, it refers to church discipline. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, oh, our Bible study kind of stunk. And it's like, it's okay, Timmy. Like, two people are here. Jesus is here. Well, no, I mean, like, he's always here. But that passage is about church discipline. Because when you have an issue, you go one-on-one with that person and resolve it. If you can't, you go with the elders, you go with some more people and you resolve it. And if you can't do that, you bring it before the church. And what's Paul done here? Forever in church history, these two ladies got called out. (laughs) How would you like that? Like this letter circulates all throughout Turkey and it's like, oh, there's Yodi and Syntyche again, you know, like doing their thing, you know. That's pastors laughing. So, like, that, but, but like, that's, that, that, that's Monday for us. That's real life for us right here. Paul doesn't take top, does not take sides. Look at the way it's written. Look at the language. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Not I entreat Euodia and Syntyche. I entreat Euodia, just to make it very clear. I entreat you and I entreat you. Both of you too, I'm not taking sides, I'm pleading with you, I'm asking the church to come alongside and to get nitty gritty and real and figure this thing out and how are you going to do it? Look, look what Paul emphasizes in this three times in these three verses. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There it is. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. There it is. Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul begins, middle, and ends with gospel. And he says, hey, I'm not saying give personal preference here to be able to figure out all the problems that are going on within your church. I'm telling you to, f- to know the story of the gospel and live your life in light of that story. That's the only way that you're gonna have real reconciliation and real friendship and genuine life transformation. Paul's joy will be complete when these two women and the church are of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, shaped by the cradle, the cross, and the crown of Christ. And Paul isn't writing like a hippie saying, let's just give love and joy and peace a chance. Do you want reconciliation? Do you want friendship? Do you want um, community? The reality that gives that peace is not personal preference. It's what Paul says to know him. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. It's the same thing as to know him. The problem, though, comes when we want to stand firm in our personal preferences and we think about our own narrative, our own stories, our own vision for how life should be. And when that story gets interrupted, we usually forget about the grand narrative of history. And things go really bad. So finally, my brothers and sisters, uh, the point of this series when Lance asked me to preach, I said, so what's our our goal here? And he said, the point of Advent series is to give our church an infusion of eternity by increasing our desire and longing for Jesus. (laughs) 
to return. Advent literally means the arrival of a noble person. And as Christians, we believe that history is in this already not yet. This time between the times when Jesus has come and he will come again. When he was in a cradle and he will return with his crown. And I want you to notice this statement in Philippians 3.20. Look up with me, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is tempting to see that phrase, our citizenship is in heaven, and think, boy, I can't wait to go to heaven. I can't wait to go there. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to God's celestial shore. That's, that's where our minds tend to go when we hear our citizenship is in heaven. But to think that way is one, not only to misunderstand the role of heaven in scripture, but also to grossly misunderstand how citizenship works. Citizenship is about allegiance and identity and status. Philippi, who Paul, the, the city where Paul wrote this letter, the, the letter of the Philippians, Philippi was a Roman colony in Greece. And if you know any Roman history, you know the famous phrase, et tu brute, right? Brutus and uh, Cassius, they go and they assassinate who? Julius Caesar. And they take an army of men and they flee thousands of miles to Greece. And what happens? Uh, Mark Antony and Octavian get their guys and they go after them and they go basically... Um, uh, get vengeance upon them. But while they're there, thousands of miles away, they take the soldiers that they have and uh, the ones remaining from the other side, and they said, okay, you are Roman citizens. You're going to stay here in Philippi, and you're going to set up Philippi as a Roman colony. You're going to bring the life, the value, the government, the culture, the beliefs, the joys, the hopes, the practices here to Philippi. You're not coming back to Rome. So they stayed there. So imagine with me, you and I right now are in Philippi uh, 2,000 plus years ago and uh, we're at a farmer's market and we're like, hey man, where are you from? And uh, he's like, oh, I'm uh, from Rome. And your question to him is, well, do you look forward to going back? And they would say, no, that's crazy. We've been told to stay here and to set up shop in Philippi. Our longing isn't that we would go to Rome, but that one day Caesar would come and visit us and we would have great joy and celebrate his presence. And that's what Paul meant when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. The last thing Rome wanted was a bunch of Roman soldiers coming back with all the spoils of war. Rome was a small metropolis place, overcrowded. The last thing they needed was all these veteran soldiers coming back, back into the city. But if you were in Philippi and you got in trouble, what did you do? You called to the one who had subjected all things to himself. And the peace of Caesar would come, the Pax Romana would come and give you peace. And Paul looks at that and says, that's a sham. It's a very political statement. Paul looks at that and says, our hope is not one glad morning we'll fly away, but one glad morning Jesus will come and make all things right. Paul's longing, and this, Paul's longing is not for heaven. 
Look, you can read the first two chapters of Philippians. He's thinking, I'm going to die. And he never once says, I can't wait to go to heaven. Never once. Never once. He says, he says what? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says in Philippians 1, uh, 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that's far better. My concern is that we think joy is escaping the natural order and just floating away and so we don't engage. My concern for the American church, and I'm telling you, my concern for the American church is that we can think about heaven without Christ. So many people and so many of us would be perfectly fine to go to heaven and to see your wife and your kids, to see great figures of history, to, to see your grandkids, to see your neighbor, whoever it is, and not even bat an eye if you don't see Christ there. But I'm telling you, if I got to heaven and I saw Kelly and I saw my kids and I saw my grandparents and I saw all that and Christ was not there, I would leave for that would be hell to me. That would be hell to me. And this is what the longing is for, is for Christ. And look, Paul talks about we are citizens of heaven. And if you want to look in context where he uses the word long for, who does he long for in Philippians 4.1? Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long, my joy and crown, other believers... We're so worried about ourselves and like, oh, escape. Hey, man, what would it look like if our church was like, hey, my crown and my joy, my crown and my joy is the people in this room. My crown and my joy, the way that I'll stand before Christ one day, crown and ruling and reigning responsibilities is not based on, well, I did seven Bethmore Bible studies. But rather, I, I, I took, I took the gospel and I let it dictate the way I feel, I think, and I act. In community. How different would Richmond be if we imitated Paul and lived in light of this story? Do you know where Paul is when he wrote Philippians? He's in a sewer. He's in a dungeon. Some theologians think he's in the maritime prison. If he's not there now, he will be. It's a three-foot manhole. They dropped you down, and you were by the sewer. It stunk. It was dark. Plenty of chances for grumbling, grumbling and complaining. The room was about six and a half feet tall, 30 feet wide, wide, 20 feet long. And Paul's in prison, in an underground prison, in a dungeon. And instead of singing, one glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. Paul says that the land where joy shall never end is here on earth as it is in heaven with Christ as our greatest desire and his people as our longing. And until he returns, may we display here in the Grove Church that reality in our marriage, in our singleness, in our family, in our parenting, our friendships, community, school, business, career, retirement, taxes, finance, celebration, rest, meals, recreation, 
holidays, vacations, all things as joyous seventh overtime people living in the last moments of a fourth quarter world. Let's pray. Father, we trust um, that where I have uh, proclaimed your word, you'll take it and build up your people. Where um, there are still questions, your spirit will meet each and every one of us individually, uh, not just in thoughts, but in the way we feel as revealed in scripture. So Lord, we pray that um, you would change us as a people to be ones who rejoice in you, to be ones who are glad in you, and that we submit all things to your great son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.